you know, it's all so obvious. The animals are just doing what they do and nature's doing what it does. And then our role is not to manage. And I say that as much as I possibly can. We are not land managers and we do not manage the land. We simply manage ourselves to have as positive an Mm -hmm. impact as we can to coordinate things. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first Friday of the new month and the Good Dirt Podcast. This week has been the very beginning of our slow living challenge, and this is something that we started doing a few years ago. It's just been such a wonderful community builder. We've found some of our favorite people by connecting through these hashtags and following one another's journeys as we work through the challenge together online, and some of those people we've even gone on to work with, and some of them we've even heard on this podcast. If you haven't signed up yet, it's not too late. We're running the challenge through the whole month of February. We're excited to be doing this right alongside you and to hear from you about how it's going. And to honor the occasion, we'll be sharing some slow living stories right here on the podcast. All you have to do is use the hashtag slow living challenge, that's hashtag slow living challenge, to share your experiences and connect with others and If you're a member in the Almanac, you can share in there as well. And we'll be pulling a story or two every week to feature here on The Good Dirt. That sounds fun. Yeah. So in the Almanac this winter, our theme is dream. And this conversation with Lynn really reminded me of the power of what it means to have an idea or simply a nudge and follow it until it takes you to places that maybe you couldn't have imagined, maybe more than you dreamed about. As in the case of our guest today, I loved hearing her story about following a nudge in all the places that it took them. It reminds me so much of my own farm journey and how our journey together with Lady Farmer evolved and even doing this podcast. Yes, today we are honored to bring you the inspirational story of Lindbreck Croft, a regenerative Scottish farm rooted in local food, community, and the dreams of two women. Today we're talking to Lynn, and for a little bit of backstory, Lynn and Sandra left their friends, family, and jobs in England to travel north to Scotland to find a bit of land that they could call their own. They had in mind keeping a few chickens, a kitchen garden, and renting out some camping space. And instead, they fell in love with Lynn Croft, which is 150 acres of opportunity and beauty, shrouded by the Cairngorms and deep in the highlands of Scotland. Can you say Outlander? <laughs> Just kidding. 
But as many of these stories go, they had no money, no plan, and no experience in farming. In their book, Our Wild Farming Life, which is coming out next month, Lynn and Sandra recount their experiences as they work out what kind of farmers they want to be. They're learning how to work with Highland cattle. They're becoming part of the crofting community. And they're beginning to understand how they can farm with nature to produce food for themselves and the people around them. Our wild farming life is what happens when you follow your dreams of living on the land. It's a story of how two people became farmers, even though they didn't intend to, and how they learned to make a living from it their way. We both loved reading this book, and of course, talking with Lynn, as I'm sure you will so love listening to her speak. She's so fun, funny, and obviously cares so deeply about her work and the land all around her, as well as her community. We are so honored to have her on the show, and we hope that you'll head over to ladyfarmer.com slash ourwildfarminglife to pre-order the book today. As soon as you listen to your podcast, right now, even before you listen to it, you can pre-order the <laughs> <Go>. book. <laughs> A pre-order of this wonderful book from the Lady Farmer Marketplace will grant you access to an exclusive Q&A with Lynn that we'll be hosting inside the Almanac later this spring. You don't have to be a member to join. You just have to pre-order the book from our website. So we hope that you will join us there. Yes, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. And we hope you'll pre-order the book so you can join us for our next conversation with this amazing lady farmer, Lynn Cassells. So my name is Lynn. I'm currently coming to you from the Cairngorms National Park in Scotland, but this is not where I guess I saw my life would transition to. I didn't see myself I would be here. So I'm originally from Northern Ireland, trained as an archaeologist. I did lots of traveling when I left school. I worked in ski resorts. Yeah, I worked in London. I just kind of tried a whole lot of bunch of things. And I guess, you know, was kind of looking for what it was that I wanted to do in life. And I ended up finding myself going basically back to square one when I was in my kind of late 20s and trained as an apprentice ranger with a big charity over here. It's called the National Trust. It's a big conservation charity that looks after kind of parks and gardens and houses and, and countryside and that sort of stuff. Got really into nature, really, really into nature and practical stuff. Three years down the line, I was doing pretty well and I'd managed to get myself a full-time job and decided to recruit a new apprentice ranger. And this really great applicant applied and her name was Sandra. You know where I'm going with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was totally above board. There was somebody else on the interview panel. Um, <laughs> but basically we kind of met and it's a bit of a, a kind of a cliched story, but that was it from terms of like us getting together. That was it. But really early on, we get, you know, we had this kind of shared dream of, of living closer to the land. And every time I explain it to people, I always feel like I have to say, it felt like I was really naive. You know, we wanted to have some chickens. We wanted to have, you know, some land. We wanted to be self-sufficient, blah, blah, blah. But it was something that was so kind of in our core that mm -hmm. we just couldn't let it go. So we basically kind of directed our lives to where we are today in that we, you know, we kind of went through this series of quitting jobs, moving, quitting jobs, and then basically looking at how much money did we have and where could we afford land. And kind of long and short of it is we managed to find a little bit in the north of Scotland, which it was a little bit big 
in that it was 15 times bigger than what we meant it <laughs> yeah. to be. And then that meant that because we had, you know, quite a bit more land, we were like, well, we're kind of going to have to upgrade here from a few backyard chickens and a veggie plot, you know, so what are we going to do with it? And that's why the book that we've just written, it starts off with, we never meant to be farmers because yeah. that was not what we meant to be. Yeah. Wow. It's such a good story. Thank you. So what are you currently doing today like describe the situation yeah okay so we are nearly six years it's nearly our six-year anniversary of being at Limbrek Croft so that's the uh, the farm that we have here and we have a fold of Highland cattle so Highland cattle come in folds not herds so we have a small fold of Highland cattle we have uh, pasture hens as layers uh, so we have layer enterprise we keep rare breed pigs which we keep in our grasslands and our woodlands And we have about eight beehives as well. So that's for honey. We also have a small micro butchery on site. So we we do all of our own pork here at Limbrek and we do some of our own beef and we sell all of our produce direct. So we're really passionate about selling only within our local community. You know, we've really tried to avoid sort of shipping our produce, all that. So all of our produce is sold locally to local people. We deliver directly ourselves. So it's completely like between us and the customer. And then on top of that, we do engagement stuff so we're really passionate about sharing not just what we're doing which is all about farming in harmony with nature but how we did it because we really feel like we're part of a grassroots movement here to kind of get people back onto the land so we're really passionate about going well look this is how we did it this is what it looks like Mm -hmm. so we do tours and courses that sort of stuff and we grow pretty much the vast majority of our own food with the exception of cereals and dairy so we keep ourselves busy yeah (laughs) sounds like it. so I think one of the really remarkable things is that when you got there you had no experiences being farmers no so there you were you had 150 acres instead of 10 and I love in the book how you describe the first bit there the first few weeks you just were like well, what do we do? (laughs) You wake up in the morning and you really had to get your bearings and didn't know what you were doing. So talk about that a little bit. And also, Mm -hmm. as you're talking, weave into how I think your lack of experience and lack of knowledge in so many instances kind of work to your advantage. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing to reflect on. Mm -hmm. So you find yourself on this land and all of a sudden your plans are going to have to change because you know, in our situation, there was much more than we anticipated that we would ever be able to afford or manage or however you want to look at it. But what we came with was a real passion for nature and an understanding and appreciation of how nature works. So that was our foundation. So our foundation for farming did not come from ag school. You know, it did not come from agricultural college. Mm -hmm. It came from life experience and learning about nature. So that was really, really key. And we didn't really appreciate that at the start because we kind of came here and to some extent we felt like we were frauds. Because we had yeah. this land and we were kind of going, oh, yeah, we're going to do this, that, the other. We didn't have a clue what we were doing and we didn't really understand the language either. You know, we talk about a little bit in the book about how we had to learn farming speak, that there mm-hmm. was 20 different names for a cow or 10 different names for a sheep. And we thought, we know what we want to do. We know what we want to achieve, but nobody else is doing it. So are we not real here? You're always kind of balancing this real passion and enthusiasm and yeah, we can do it with, you know, this almost just continual self-doubt. So we just kind of kept plowing on and plowing on and plowing on. And I think we had this nature foundation. We had the land. One thing that we didn't really have a lot of was money, especially early on, because we put everything that we had into buying Lindbreck. And really there was no, there was a few kind of coins in the pocket at the end and that was it. So we were spending so much time working off the farm to pay the bills that we were going, well, 
how are we going to set up a farming business if we haven't got any money? So we navigated that in two ways. One was we looked at what grants were available, which is very common in this country. You can kind of access pots of funding for different things. But it was actually looking at it and thinking, rather than thinking, you know, what do I need to buy? It's thinking, what have I already got? So what's nature already providing for me that I don't have to then buy? And I always think a nice example is the flora that we have, okay? So we have highland cattle. Highland cattle, they eat anything. They eat shrubs, they eat grasses, they eat wildflowers, they eat tree leaves, they eat heather, they eat absolutely everything. And they're hardy and they're hairy and they're built for our kind of pretty harsh climate. So if I take that cattle and I put that on my land, I don't have to buy in expensive feed. I don't have to plow my fields to harvest some kind of really fast growing high calorie crop. I don't have to house them in winter. I don't have to give them supplements. So so it was looking at all these different things and going right, right animal, right land and factoring that in as well. Because what we didn't have was, well, well, you've got to do it this way because that's how you farm. That's what you do. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't have neighbors and and people around you like telling you this. I'm surprised you didn't get a lot of grief for what you were trying to do. I think we had so much enthusiasm, Mary, uh-huh, okay. <laughs> that either people were terrified to burst our bubble okay. <laughs> or, <laughs> or they just thought, you know what, they are so passionate let's just see what happens. Yeah, okay. And I really felt even the people, you know, our surrounding neighbours, they're all really kind of traditional farmers. Yeah. I never once felt that they were looking at us thinking they're going to fail. I always felt they were looking at us going, I really hope they win. Mm. You know, I really hope they get through this. Oh, I think that's remarkable. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's really nice. And I think as well, what we really tried not to do, and, and if I'm honest, I don't think we always completely managed it because we were so like, yeah, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, is that we never tried to, judge people around us and what they were doing you know the Mm -hmm. decisions that they had made on their land we tried to look at it and learn from it and the more we learned the more we questioned and the more we thought well yeah that's not going to work on our farm that's not going to work for our model Mm -hmm. yeah that's what I'm talking about when I said your lack of experience in farming worked to your advantage because you really went in with like beginner's mind and you know like we talk about in yoga even if you're not new to something pretend like you are and there are a lot of things with traditional farming that a lot of questions need to be asked (laughs) Mm -hmm. but people Mm -hmm. aren't asking them because that's the way it's done and all your neighbors are gonna go yeah no you know I've been doing this for like 30 years and this is the way you have to do it and I've heard a lot of stories of farmers that are trying to shift to a more regenerative model and they encounter actually a lot of hostility i mean sometimes you're in a situation i have heard yeah people are actually kind of threatened by it and yeah because i guess when your family's been doing something for two or three generations and someone else comes in and says they're going to do it differently then maybe you feel like you have to prove you're not wrong or whatever but it sounds like you guys were girls the girls as they called you (laughs) the girls the girls were able to come across like you say like very we're new here we're not here to tell anybody else what to do we're just going to try it our way okay yeah, and it, well, and it worked. It, I, I think you know certainly the people that are around us that the farming neighbors you know who are you know friends and we kind of see them as family don't actually see them that often but you know they're, yeah. they're, they're always there if we need them but I think I would be naive to say that I would not think that there are people out there who mm-hmm 
have got a lot of raised eyes as to what we do and Mm -hmm. who will say oh well it's all very well they do that but that's not going to work for me right Mm -hmm. and then we always say look we're not a model or we're not trying to tell anybody what to do we're just trying to show one example of what a regenerative agriculture farm Mm -hmm. looks like but I think people can find this way of doing things threatening because it is as you say it's a complete culture shift it's a complete transition but I think what's crazy about it is that it's such a short-term cultural shift because a hundred years ago Mm -hmm. we were all doing this you know all of us but we didn't have this huge hungry agricultural industry that Mm -hmm. was really driving a lot of agricultural practices today yeah and when you hear farmers now say oh I've been doing this for 30 years you want to say 30 years really isn't very long yeah like we were just talking about before we started recording how even as you know being here as humans is such a blink and the industrial agriculture model is even just a quicker blink and yeah those that are really immersed in it because it's the current model aren't looking back you know a hundred years even no and, and and I think as well we're always told that if we look back we're going back and actually yeah. mm. we're not going back we need to remember because we've evolved to this point we've done quite well so if there's good stuff that we were doing maybe it's okay to keep some of that yeah right I think as well you know where we're at with a lot of things is that kind of peer pressure isn't it you know we all had it when we were in school as soon as you start to break out of the mold and do Mm -hmm. what other people are not doing you're kind of weird you're different and I think another thing that we need to talk about more in farming which is what we try to present in an honest way not in an artificial way but is in health and happiness you know the, the way of farming nowadays you know farmers are getting mentally sicker because they're not happy and you know as a nation the food that we're producing is really not nourishing us in the way that it's should be to keep mm-hmm. us really truly healthy mm-hmm. so we're not kind of going down the kind of the happy healthy route and I think talking about not just the food we produce but how we produce it and how that makes us feel as food producers and being happy is mm-hmm. got to be the ultimate number one goal it's not money in the bank account it's you know where you are in your head yeah and how do you make that literally backbreaking work less backbreaking and mind breaking yeah. I'm not a farmer but my understanding of the methods are the way that you guys are doing things this regenerative sort of more like letting nature take the lead it's actually in many ways it can be less work on the one person if you kind of set up the mm-hmm. systems and let nature do its thing which I think is really interesting and I want to hear you talk more about that and my question sort of goes back to what we were talking about a second ago with the history, particularly of Lynn Brettcroft and where you are. Mm-hmm. And when you first came onto the land, what had it been? Like when you inherited it, was it farmed before? Has it been farmed in history? And sort of how does that speak to what you're doing today? And maybe tell us also in that, what is a croft? Yeah. You don't know that word in America. <laughs> so Limbra Croft has got a super interesting history, but before I launch into it, I'm going to tell you what a croft okay. is. So... <laughs> That helps to put it into context. Yes. A croft is something that is uniquely Scottish. Okay, the word croft often will be, you know, people will use it sometimes globally to denote a small agricultural landholding, but actually as a legal entity, it is completely uniquely Scottish. And not just uniquely Scottish, it's uniquely to the north and the west generally of Scotland. So we're actually kind of on the eastern fringes of what are called the crofting counties. So crofts 
came about, so Crofts are, are generally small farms, usually on average about five hectares in size, but they can vary kind of bigger or smaller. They're covered by their own law and they basically came about after the Highland Clearances, which happened at the end of the 19th century, which is when a lot of the a lot of Scotland was owned by very rich people and they kind of basically threw a lot of the people off the land, ironically, to make more space for sheep farming, mm. which was more profitable at the time. So the crofting law came about after that to basically ensure that that would never happen again. So that if people had a bit of land that was denoted as a croft, it would be protected in law so that in 200 years time, more rich people couldn't come and chuck them off because of something else. So in order to make sure that they had this protection, this legal protection, it was a whole suite of laws that they had to follow. The two main laws of which are you have to live either on or within 32 kilometres of your croft and you have to work your croft. Now, traditionally, that would have meant agriculturally. Nowadays, working your croft can be like a diversification activity. So if you have like, I don't know, two acres of croft land, you know, you can run it as a little campsite and that's your kind of main industry, as long as somehow you're working the land. And if you adhere to those two main rules, plus about another 6,000 rules that are all mired in bureaucracy <laughs> and none of us actually know what any of them are, but we've all signed up right. to it. Um, then basically you're you're kind of protected. So that kind of is, in essence, is a croft. Uh, then about 30 years ago, they reviewed the legal elements. They allowed some crofters to buy their land so they could become what's called an owner-occupier of their croft. So nowadays you can either become a tenant, so a, a kind of a tenant of the landowners, or you can own and occupy the croft as well. So we're, we're the latter, we're an owner-occupier. So that's a croft. So I'm going to be testing you on that okay. later. So I, I hope got you got it, all got that. it, got it, got it. <laughs> good, good, good. So Limbrek is a croft. We are a registered croft. We are a very large croft, as I say. So we're a 150 acre croft and we're an East Coast croft. So we're kind of on the eastern fringes of the Crofton counties. It's been farmed for basically as long as any historical maps can tell us Limbrek has been farmed. It was within the Grant family. Grant is a very common name in this area. Our nearest biggest town is called Grand Town on Spey. Grants were everywhere and Limbrek was owned and run or certainly tenanted and then later owned by the Grant family for at least 300 years, they tell us. They had cattle, they had sheep, they had hens, they had ducks and the original crofting family lived here until about the mid 90s. It's not a very easy place to live this. We're 350 metres above sea level, so we're high altitude, we're high latitude at 57 degrees north. We face due south, which is where all the prevailing winds come from, and we're on very acidic soils. So, you know, for those people way back in the day, it was pretty severe, but they were hardy, hardy folk, and they lived in this tiny little squat stone house that's, you know, perched on the edge of this kind of hill that, you know, faces the mass of the Cairngorms to the south. But they lived here until about the mid-90s and that's when they actually sold the croft. They basically, from what we can kind of gather, is they weren't a wealthy people. You know, they really struggled to make ends meet. The house that they lived in had no insulation. It had no central heating. You mean 1990s? 1990s. Yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah. So like 25 years yeah. ago, they only actually got electric up here at sort of the mid to late 80s. Wow. They really fought hard. And I think come sort of mid to late 90s, they sort of thought, you know what, we could sell this place and buy a nice little house in Granton and we could have central heating and running water. And so so they sold the croft and the croft was divided up into two parts. There was one part that was about a, an, a strip of about an acre, which they kind of got planning permission for and somebody built a house on that and lived there. And then the 
rest of the craft was retained and bought by somebody locally who kind of took it on and didn't really do anything with it. I think probably didn't really know quite what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So they lived here for about 20 years. And then we came along and thought, yeah, that looks like a good project. (laughs) Let's go with it. But you know, when we took it on, I kind of always describe it as semi-derelict in that actually really probably from an agricultural sense, it was completely derelict. There was one fence that went around the edge and that was it. There were no internal fences. There was no water in the fields for animals. There was just nothing. Mm -hmm. There was just nothing except two pretty much semi-derelict buildings and a little wooden cabin and that was it. Wow. Was that family that the last family that lived up until the nights had they farmed it? No, they, they didn't farm it. I think they wanted to farm it. I think that was their plan. Mm-hmm. But whenever you take something on, you know, they basically inherited or well, they bought, but as, in, in terms of the land, they inherited a land, which in itself was kind of past its agricultural mm. use in that there wasn't really anything that they could do. Either you kind of go for it 100% or you're kind of like a rabbit in headlights. Mm -hmm. And I think they kind of went at it a little bit and then they just sort of sat back and enjoyed the views, which is also fine, you know. What we always say is that actually what they did for Limbrek in those 20 years was everything Limbrek needed at that time. Yeah, let it rest. And that was just rest, just allow it to just rest. And so everything that they did was perfect. Mm -hmm. It was just perfect. Isn't that something? So... When you guys got there and um, your plans had been to have chickens in a garden. So you could have done that. You could have done that even there. You didn't have to do all this. No, you didn't. (laughs) Has anybody ever told you that? (laughs) Myself. 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 (laughs) You could have done. You could have said, what a great view. And here's the garden and there's the chicken coop. We could have. We could have. That was what you wanted. Yeah, it's... You know what? It's so funny because prior to working at Limbrek, so, you know, obviously Sandra and I met when we were working for the National Trust and and that was great. But prior to living at Limbrek, we were actually uh, lived in the south of Scotland and we were working as tree planters Uh and we were working on sites, what in this country is called the rewilding movement. So basically that's when you you kind of get a tract of land, which is, I don't know, either been overgrazed by sheep or has had some kind of real kind of nasty monoculture woodland plantation on it and kind of getting rid of all of that. And the idea is that you kind of intervene a little bit at the start to help kind of nature kick start and then you back off so we could have done that with Limbrek you know we could have just had our little sort of half acre plot with the kitchen garden and yeah a few rogue hens and just kind of played a little bit at the edges and then step back but actually that's really only perpetuating the problem here because the problem is that we're so disconnected from nature that we don't actually know where our role is in it anymore and we're not really accepting that our role can be positive we can do a lot of damage and we seem to be really good at that mm-hmm. but actually we can also play a really important part because we're part of the ecology so what is our role so that's really why we decided to launch into a more agriculture cultural-based business Mm -hmm. that involved using uh, native breed animals who will be distant relatives to large herbivores or, you know, wild boar and kind of work with those guys as a part of a team to then do all the stuff that they do, utilize all their superpowers of, you know, building soil, fertilizing, feeding the soil and taking all of that and, you know, working with them to then produce food as well. So I guess really we were kind of, we just had this axe to grind yeah and we thought we can just walk we can just 
kick back and you know work the nine to five and yeah enjoy the view on a Saturday morning with a coffee or maybe there's something else we can do and that was the decision that we made. Well it sounds like you were really seized by this vision and mission and you just went in there head first and just hit the ground running and you did all these things so really in quick succession you know first there was Mm. this then there was that and then there was this. So you were talking about the rewilding and that's so fascinating as I mentioned to you our membership group is reading rewilding now and Mm. I just devoured that book. I was so fascinated by it. And it seems like such a logical or natural remedy for these big plots mm-hmm. of land that have been damaged over the years. And yeah, just let them go mm-hmm. back. And isn't that the least work and the least intervention and all that sort of thing. But what's so interesting about what you just said is that sometimes the land actually, correct me if I got this wrong, but actually needs some healing and actually needs some healing work before it can kind of really be what it's supposed to be. And is that right? Yeah, I think- I think absolutely. And I think what we need to identify is what our role is in that healing. And we have to be very honest with ourselves. So we have to say, what do I want? And then we have to be very honest with what we're seeing, which is what nature wants. And we have to find the balance in between that. And I think if we're going to allow land to heal, it's what is it healing mm-hmm. from and what is it healing towards? Because quite often in, you know, in, in, when people talk in rewilding, and this is not everybody, you know, I, you know, there's a lot of people who totally see rewilding as being a people and a nature thing completely. But some people will go, will hark back to a period in history, you know, 300 years ago, say before, I don't know, sheep grazing was extensive or, you know, certain types of tree species were introduced to this country you know say before that or maybe it'll be like pre ice age or something Mm -hmm. and they'll have this specific time in history and they go right that's what we're aiming for and completely eliminate our role what were we doing Mm -hmm. were we hunting and gathering then okay so what did that look like and were we actually you know when we were hunting and gathering were we changing how plants evolved because of how we harvested from them or were we changing the movements of wild herds because we were hunting them and you know we were still there so what was our role and yeah I think we think we need to really ask those questions honestly also what is rewilding <laughs> now there's a question <laughs> we just sort of glazed over it but I'm sure people listening might like, not what's rewilding oh and the book is called wilding not rewilding it's a nice title actually wilding rather than rewilding because the re makes it a historical thing almost right. yes like a turning back of yes. the time and- lately I've been feeling like I can't keep up I want to slow back down. The disconnect between what I value and how I want to be in the world every day versus what I feel is being demanded of me has grown jarring, especially now that it seems the world has opened up entirely. The great pause is a distant memory, and instead we've been put on a strange fast-forward, and it's like high-pitched, and there's nails on chalkboard, and everything is just so inaccessibly and sometimes even comically expensive mass killings and war and men in suits arguing while the ones with all the money make things impossible for everyone else turning most violently on our greatest ally nature herself anyone else feel like this welcome you're not alone here I'm just glad that I have this podcast to come back to. These conversations I get to have with my mom and the incredible guests we have on keep me grounded and remind me of the compass in my pocket. 
the way that I want to be in the world. All I have to do is remember to take it out and look at it. This is why we created the Almanac. The Almanac is our growing community that we host online. Don't worry, it's not one more thing you have to do or to check off or show up for. It's not affiliated with the mass social media conglomerates, and we don't and can't do anything with your data. It's merely a place where we at Lady Farmer map out a blueprint of how we intend to live fully and slowly and deeply into each season. It's an almanac of plants, of ideas, of books we read together, gatherings we meet once a month, recipes, sweet community of others walking alongside us. It's a continuation of our conversations here on The Good Dirt. So many times we just dig in deeper. We all need to process a little bit more. It's a place for you to dig in and daily wonder ask, reflect, share, and celebrate in the pain and joy of it all. I never get tired of pictures of people's tomatoes. (laughs) It's the best. How can we slow this thing down? How can we live every day so that we close this gap between what we know should be and what is? We begin summer on June 21st. We hope that you'll join us. Go to ladyfarmer.com slash community to learn more. And know that every membership helps the podcast continue. It's a group effort, y'all. We appreciate you. Thanks so much. You went there to Neep Castle. Yes, did I, I went to Nep back in? Do you know? I can't even remember when it was. It was when I was at the National Trust. So it must have been about 2012, 2013, something like that. And it was actually when I was like a major ancient tree geek. I just loved everything to do with ancient trees, and they have the most incredible ancient trees at Nep. Mm. And we went there to see some of the work that they were doing. I paid no attention to the agricultural elements at all like none I had no interest in them whatsoever I just wanted to see like these 300 year old oak trees and that's uh-huh. what I was totally kind of loving <laughs> but it's so to seed it's so to seed yeah, and that, that's yeah. what was really important and I think going back to you know the question as to what mm-hmm. is rewilding I think it will depend on who you ask but I think in effect rewilding is taking a piece of land and allowing it to become what self-willed land what some people will call self-willed land so you know what is the land trying to be before we came in and broke it systems and that in effect I think is is rewilding it often involves taking people out of the equation it often involves you know planting trees ripping out fences re-meandering rivers reintroducing species like in this country it's all about species like beavers and lynx and wolves and so it's all about kind of restoration Mm. on a kind of a really wild scale interesting and can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Lynn Brett Croft is like goes along with that and maybe in some ways it departs from that yeah I mean I think I mean I I would say it's the quintessential essence of of rewilding what we're doing you know so so if, if we look at sort of the first project that we did here we came here we didn't really know what we were doing and we didn't have any money at that point so we were both working off farm but what we looked out onto this bit of hill ground that's just towards the west and there was these trees 
were kind of starting to recolonize up the slope because certainly the slope hadn't had any farmed animals on it for at least probably 20, 30 years. It had the odd kind of marauding deer and hare, but nothing, nothing to really stop the march of the trees. Mm-hmm. And so we looked at this hill ground, saw these trees marching up and thought that's trying to reforest. But it was a very limited seed source. So really only kind of pine and birch. So because we'd just been kind of tree planting in the borders, we thought, well, we'll put some more species up there. So we'll plant a different kind of species mix and mix that into what's naturally recolonizing from the seed source in this area and create this incredible woodland, this really diverse woodland. So we did that. We managed to get a one of the, in this country, there's a big drive from the government to plant trees. It's like, that is going to solve all the world's problem is just plant more trees, plant more trees. <laughs> so there's huge kind of funding and incentivization to do that. That was totally up our street at the time. What was interesting about it was as we were kind of creating this new forest, you know, we planted 17,400 trees up there. When we were creating this new forest, we're starting to think, right, this is great. You know, this is great for nature. This is great for like local diversity and stuff. But if we're kind of going to farm this land, what's this going to do for it? Mm-hmm. And so we really started to see how the what we were actually doing which is a real popular thing to do in rewilding is plant lots of trees what's that going to do for our farming business and we started to see it in the context of our animals and we started to think well we you know we're in a really exposed area two things that we desperately need are shade and shelter well we're creating what is in effect a giant living barn on our hill ground so actually that's opening up a lot more space in the future for our animals to go into cattle pigs that sort of thing Mm. The more we started to evolve our work here, so we were starting to plant hedgerows on the edges of our fields, we were trying, starting to extend existing woodlands, you know, we were really kind of looking at all of this and thinking, right, we've got habitat connectivity, we've got more shade, we've got more shelter. And then we start to notice things like, well, the cattle are eating the tree leaves. And we start to, you know, read into this and figure out that actually tree leaves are a really important part of a cow's diet you know nutritionally medicinally you know they get loads of minerals and nutrients from it so now we're starting to think so actually they're not just going to get shade and shelter they're actually going to get forage from it as well as they're kind of moving through these trees they're going to scratch them they're going to naturally thin them out Mm. and the pigs are going to snuffle and break up the ground so that means that that's kind of like oh look at that little pocket of soil that's going to be perfect for a tree seedling to set and grow you know and you start to kind of make all these connections and you go wow this is all so obvious Mm. you know it's all so obvious the animals are just doing what they do and nature's doing what it does and then our role is not to manage and I say that as much as I possibly can we are not land managers and we do not manage the land we simply manage ourselves to have as positive an Mm -hmm. impact as we can to coordinate things so we're coordinators or the way I put it in the Mm -hmm. book is I say like we're like the coxswain in the rowing team you know we're kind of we're playing our role but we're not imposing our will Mm -hmm. and that's an important uh, distinction I love what you say in the book Mm -hmm. and you said it a minute ago nature doesn't need to be rewilded people do and you hear constantly we've lost our connection with nature we need to be more connected with nature and that's so true in essence but actually even that statement sort of sets up the duality that we're like separate that we're you know the assumption that it's like us and them and yeah we need to be more connected or that we can be more or less connected which is interesting because we are nature 
Yeah. So you see what I mean? Like there's in saying we need to be more connected with nature. It's like making nature the other. Yeah, that's right. So and it's really hard. It's kind of subtle. But if we accept the fact that we're all in it together, we're all there. And how does that change things in terms of what you're saying? Like here you are putting the trees in and then it occurs to you, "Hmm, this might get in the way of our agriculture. Mm -hmm. What is the perception of rewilding? And is it something that is met with skepticism? And I would say in your community and in the, and also in the wider community. And are people suspicious of it? Do they think it's just kind of a crunchy granola people thing? <laughs> what do they think? I think some people think it's brilliant. I yeah. think some people, they literally crave it. I yeah. think they crave the knowledge that land is being saved from the clutches of mankind. I think that, you know, so so some people really buzz off of it. And I think in contrast, some people are frightened of it because so Scotland as a country has a very, very poor land distribution. I think it's something like 50% of Scotland is owned by 500 people. It's Mm -hmm. some kind of crazy fact where it seems to be the land of the rich that can buy these huge, big estates Mm -hmm. and more or less do what they want with them. So one of the trends, one of the growing trends now is buying up large swales of land and, hey, we're going to rewild it. And people are thinking, well, what does that mean? Does that mean basically that that means more people off the land? Right. Some people will talk of rewilding as being the modern Highland clearances. Oh, that, you know, I've heard oh, that they, they'll feel that strongly about it. Mm-hmm. And that to me is not rewilding. That is Highland clearances if you're kicking everybody off the land, you know, because it's exclusion. So you, you've kind of got this, it's polarised, it's so polarised, yeah. the rewilding debate. And I think you know, I talk about in the book how we used to feel like so part of it you know we were like yeah you know we are you know rewilding is everything you know we're angry with farmers and we're angry with this person and that person because look they're killing the land and so we were totally there and then we then became farmers you know that didn't (laughs) didn't, didn't, wasn't wasn't quite in the plan and we started to go hold on a minute we're way off track here and you know it's it's ironic because I actually think that some of the most rewilded people that I know are farmers because they live and work in nature. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Actually rewilded people, you mean? Yeah, because they're living in harmony with the land. Mm-hmm. Like they know the land. And okay, so they might farm in a different way to how we do it. You know, they might use a lot more mechanized equipment. They might do practices that we wouldn't do, but they're so connected to the land, mm-hmm. you know, and they know how to produce food, you know, or they eat meat from animals that they have raised themselves or chickens that they keep in their yard or whatever. They're so rewilded. And that's the irony of it all. That's so interesting. I just love the way you express that shift. And it also, I mean, it says something about these positions we all take. Mm-hmm. Everybody's so polarized on so many things now. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that we think we could ever think that we would know the right way way to do something that's hilarious <laughs> because inevitably yeah. five years later we're like well that wasn't you know <laughs> yeah well as well as they say you know you, you've, you've at least got to get your own house Amen. in order before you can start you know throwing rocks at other people's windows and we all need to kind of yeah mm-hmm. oh yeah everybody's wrong and I think yeah we're so angry nowadays aren't we <laughs> we're so angry it's like mm-hmm. 
the mm-hmm. biggest chip on everybody's shoulders and you just think so what is the point yeah. you know yeah. why, why are I, so I love the fact that you and, modeled that shift yeah, it's a real perfect, shame. you know like that's okay I mean you got in there and your life experience mm. led you down another path and that's okay <laughs> and and you didn't abandon one or the other yeah. you just you kind of yeah I hope so you integrated all that you knew from both ends yeah and I think it's okay I'm yeah. saying this now I feel more confident to do it but it's really about celebrating yes. your individuality you know, in many senses, you know, people will always try yeah. to put you in a box just to understand you. So that's where, you know, the labels of, you know, oh, you, mm-hmm. you know, you, you practice this way of farming. Oh, or you're a you do rewilder. This, or you are that. And <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're a crazy hippie lady on the side of a hill, you know, or whatever. It's, it's labels are boxes, but labels, you know, as soon as somebody puts you in a box or attributes a certain label to you, you know, if, if it happens often enough, mm-hmm. you, you know, yes. you can transition into that because that's what you think you are. And, and we just mm-hmm. really need to remember that, you know, I always say how yeah. we farm here is the Limbrek way. It's the Limbrek way, you know, it, it's got mm-hmm. elements of, of regen ag or it's got elements of rewilding or it's got mm. elements of agroecology or agroforestry or yeah. whatever but it's the Limbrek way. I have a farmer friend who his practices are amazing he, he's not organic certified or anything but he does yeah. everything you know the way that we would buy his food <laughs> and he like can't he's a very like reactive yeah. person he's hilarious and he like you say like regenerative he's like don't say that word he hates uh-huh. the word regenerative because he's like it's just farming it's just far- <laughs> it's just like what you do if you farm obviously it's regenerative yeah. <laughs> it's like, I I've never met someone so impassionedly like <laughs> upset with that label, but it makes sense. I'm like, I get where he's coming from. <laughs> Any label. Yeah. yeah, any label, yeah. but like this, it's just so like regenerative. It's yeah. like, yeah. I mean, we love that word. Like we use it all the time, but yeah. I get why it's like obvious, <laughs> you know, if you're growing something, I don't regenerating. Know. <laughs> well, it's funny. Somebody said to Sandra once, we were doing an interview for something and he said, well, it's regenerative agriculture. And she right. went, well, it's not regenerative agriculture. And and, and it was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's basically yeah. it. And uh, it's like, a, it's another trend, isn't it? It's another, no, it, yeah. it, like, I don't think it is a fad, but you know, people can perceive it as, oh, it's another trend. It's the latest fad or regenerative agriculture regenerative agriculture and then immediately people go oh when these concepts hit the crucial point and the kind of a collective understanding then there's kind of a latching on to it yeah Mm. and then it sort of outlives its meaning because of that and then along comes the next thing like i would say regenerative is the thing that came after the word sustainable i mean we still use sustainable all the time but that Mm. got overused so anyway one has to keep on their toes with all this stuff i think as well that they become overused and misunderstood as well so so regenerative agriculture yeah i don't know you say take some kind of farming that somebody who says that their regenerative agriculture does and oh yeah we're regen ag and then somebody else does it and then you think but you're not actually yeah it's just yeah the latest toy or the slightest word yeah mm-hmm. it becomes watered down and then it becomes less effective and then yeah then the next thing comes in but to your point probably the bottom line of that is it's not degenerative so let's just yeah. let's just don't degenerate <laughs> and then we're good yeah, exactly you know that's, exactly. that's a good rule <laughs> the bar is so low the bar is <laughs> yeah, the so yeah. low well you, you you need to say to your friends so do you dislike degenerative yeah (laughs) that's a good one (laughs) that's a good one i need to know what he says he'll just stare at me and then be like and then like walk away (laughs) that's like you know this kind of person right like that yeah 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 well if you could give us just kind of a quick like you don't have to go through the whole story because people need to buy your book and read it but (laughs) like the first thing you did was your chickens 
And then yeah. just from there, to kind of a quick kind of run through to from there where you are now. So we started off with three hens, mm-hmm. Rose Bay and Willow, uh, named after plants. Yeah. Are they still with us? No, no, no sadly not. <laughs> we do have uh, shortly after Rose Bay and Willow got one called Sage. Um, who actually we now call football because she's quite round. She like football. So she's still with us and she's Amazing. she's got to be nearly, well, five and a half. And another one called Blue, who's still with us as well. She's like the old lady. She kind of, if you imagine like an old lady that looked like a chicken, that's Blue. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. So we, have, we still have a few of them. After we, we kind of started to increase uh, hen numbers because we started to sell surplus eggs at the top of our track. And yeah, we just noticed that there was like a huge kind of interest people were just going nuts for these kind of like gorgeous eggs all the girls are fed an organic feed they're you know foraging in the all around the homestead like these deep orange yolks you know there's like really deep orange creamy farm yolks so people were going nuts for them we knew that kind of eggs would be a fairly easy to sell product so we started something called egg club and increased the number of hens whereby we invited local people to sign up for a subscription a monthly subscription and in return they'd get a a box or two boxes or however many they wanted of eggs delivered to their door every week and that was a really nice model for us because what it meant that was that we had monthly money coming in every month and uh, we didn't have to spend loads of time kind of flogging eggs they just went out and we were getting produce out every week into our community so egg club started to become established and around sort of shortly before we launched egg club we got first pigs onto the croft we work with a rare breed they're called an oxford sandy and black they're a hardy hairy rare breed and we were using them in places like our woodlands and again this kind of really sort of rare breed pure free range pork started to sell that people locally were just you know going crazy for it because I you know people often think that pork's a bland meat they always go oh, yeah. I'm not so fussed about pork needs a good sauce pork needs yeah. a good sauce <laughs> barbecue sauce <laughs> Yeah, I think a pork steak is as good as a beef fillet steak. It's just exceptional. So people were kind of getting a flavour of this pork and they were going, wow, okay, that's great. Shortly after that, we got uh, cattle on the croft. So we got our highland cattle on and we were starting to learn about uh, regenerative grazing with them. So moving them every day, never allowing them to overgraze, all that sort of stuff. So this was all kind of happening. Alongside that, we were still working. Mm -hmm. So we were still working off farm because we weren't really making any money at this stage and any infrastructure that we'd installed on the croft so we'd ha- we renovated one of the old buildings and we built a new barn we'd done through applying for some government support through your grant schemes anything that we could kind of get our hands on that fit with our model we applied for but we were still at that point like of like look how are we going to make this a full-time job you know this is where we both want to be so one of the ways which we decided to increase our revenue was to put on micro butchery on site and to go into like artisan range of produce so added value produce because the thing that we weren't going to do was get onto the productivity treadmill okay mm-hmm. so we have 150 acres we've got a lot of land we could carry oh so we could carry loads more animals we've got tons of space But when are we tipping between what is regenerative and what is degenerative? You know, Mm -hmm. when are we actually building soil or when are we causing damage to the soil? And so because of that, we've only really capped our numbers 
of animals at the amount that we feel are having a really positive environmental impact. So in order to maximise the return from that, we thought if we can make it all into added value produce, you know, all of a sudden you're taking like a cut of, say, like pork belly and you're turning it into this kind of epic smoked streaky bacon. You're maximising the value massively. So we applied for a like kind of a business diversification loan, put the micro butchery or installed the micro butchery. Sandra trained as a butcher via YouTube. (laughs) <laughs> primarily um, yeah we got we got the environmental health out we kind of we made sure that we were all kind of like kosher from the environmental health point of view and we just we just got stuck in and so we were able to basically yeah massively increase the value of our produce so that sort of started to help with the income side of things and then because we were really passionate about sharing our story as I say I'm from Ireland I like to talk you might have got that already <laughs> so you know we, we love but we you know we, we really enjoy Enjoy sharing what, what we're doing just to sort of show people, you know, you can do this. It's, it's, it's possible. So doing tours and courses that helped to diversify our income a little bit more, which meant that now we're both here full time. And yeah, I think I always say we're both unemployable now. You know, yeah. we could never work for anybody. But <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine working for anybody else. It sounds like you got really famous in there. Yeah, <laughs> superstar. Like, oh, you know, the TV show and you, you were on all these councils and on all this policy stuff. And it, yeah. it sounds like there's a period in there where you were just, wow, like the sharing of it and the advising and the consulting was almost bigger than the whole project itself. Yeah. That's a really, really good observation, actually, because we kind of got so consumed. We were on, I mean, we were just flying. Yeah. And then there was kind of this juggernaut behind us, you know, and it was mm-hmm. like, a, a, you know, at the start, we were pushing it. And then all of a sudden it was mm-hmm. chasing us. Yeah. And we were, yeah, we were going to the British Parliament. Yeah. We were like yeah we were on tv and we were hosting all these like politicians and stuff and then all of a sudden we just went hold on a minute you know was this what it was supposed to be I mean none of it was what it was supposed to be because it's completely changed but really the quintessential essence of all of it was about me and Sandra living off the land. Yeah. That was it. You wanted your chickens. <laughs> being healthy and being happy. And it was such a spectacle. It was so mind-blowing <laughs> to the whole country. <laughs> Who are these people just living? Yeah. Isn't that funny? Like, what is that like human Tell nature? Them to go away. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the way of the universe or something. You do a good job at something and, and like, all of a sudden you're like, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it just all kind of went a little bit mad and we thought you know certainly from the policy side of things we were just like we are not the right people to be doing this right you know, like I am not a hobnobber in a political spectrum you know no. I'll talk to the queen the way I'm talking to you you know mm-hmm. there's no there's no filter it just comes out I just felt so uncomfortable in those situations and we, that's what we were spending all of our time doing yeah. and we were just like hold on a minute I want to be talking to like that person down the road who buys our eggs mm-hmm. or I want to be talking to like that girl over there who's desperate to get back on the land just the real people mm-hmm. and that's when it was like pull it back whoa you know rein that horse in how did you do that how in the world did you do that you just started saying no I think really Mary looking back we had to do a lot of soul searching as well probably more me than Sandra because Sandra's always been the practical one she's always been kind of like you know looking after all the animals and stuff yeah whereas I was the one that was kind of more doing this public facing kind of thing but in a way that just didn't fit Mm -hmm. and so I had to really kind of step back and go you know what's my role where does this fit Mm -hmm. because I'm burning out Sandra's burning out 
we're both trying to push it in the same direction, but it's just not the groove that we should be in. Yeah, we literally just started to say no. And I think some people probably started to think, all right, and maybe weren't really quite sure what we were going on. And really, it was just us trying to figure it out ourselves and just buy ourselves some time. And and that's what we did. And then we never looked back. You were looking for some slow living. And it sounds like, you you know, you went on your slow living journey and it took you all the way to the other side and you had to come back. Yeah. It's a great story. Isn't it so ironic that, you know, we were were leaving to come to Limbrecht. The whole vision of Limbrecht was was that slower living. We got here. We didn't live a single slow minute when we started. (laughs) It was just like, you know, Usain Bolt. And then it was only really relatively recently that we're starting to find that really nice balance and feels a lot more harmonious. It's been a process. I was just going to ask you, like, what does slow living mean to you? And how are you able to embrace that now? It's such an amazing story because this has all only been within six years. So where are you now with that? You're, you're starting to find balance. So what does that look like? And what does a day-to-day life look like for you guys? Yeah, so I think our, you know, finding our feet has been a fairly, really starting to find our feet. It's been a fairly recent kind of next phase on our journey, I would say. I think slow living is a really interesting term because my life is quite quick. Mm-hmm. Sandra's life is quite quick. We're naturally busy people. We like to kind of be busy. I like to be busy physically. I like to be busy mentally, but I'm not hectic. I'm not crazy and I'm not chaos. Mm-hmm. And for me, that is the difference between slow living and not slow living. It's just you're not surrounded by madness. You have a certain sort of, I guess, internal calmness mm-hmm. and confidence and you know what you're doing and you know what you want but your life could be really busy really active and really interesting so I think that's a kind of a a place that we're both finding individually in our own different ways as well as kind of collectively in a in a kind of a relationship but also in a business partnership too our days look very very different so Sandra is the she's the animal lady I I always say have have you heard of I'm sure you guys have you know Temple Grand and incredible amazing animal experts so Sandra has this gift of being with animals and she understands them and she knows them so you know every morning she'll get up she lets the hens out she goes and feeds the pigs she moves the cows she oversees all of that and then she'll busy herself during the day with working in the kitchen garden or yesterday she was tanning a deer hide Mm. oh wow and you know all sorts of stuff she's really really good practically as well as being our kind of chief butcher so so she'll be out and about all the time you know as soon as if it's not raining she's outside and god forbid you try and keep her inside when it's not raining it's not good it's Uh not good (laughs) it's like let me out um so on the other side so I do a lot more kind of internal stuff so I'm a real nester so I love doing house stuff. I love cooking and baking and just just doing kind of housey stuff. I also do a lot of our admin, so like the accounts, I do the social media, I do this kind of thing, you know, chatting with people. I really enjoy running. That's my kind of thing. So I'll, you know, two or th- well, three or four times a week I go running. So our kind of daily kind of grooves are quite different. But what we always do is in the evenings we come together, we have some downtime sort of individually. We eat a really epic meal, like we cook from fresh pretty much every day. And if it's not from fresh, it's something frozen that we've already cooked. So we'll have this kind of epic celebratory meal. And then we just, like everybody else in the world, we binge on Netflix. Yay. We just chill out, yeah. you know? I know. <laughs> so Lynn, so what does a good dirt mean to you? And you can answer that. 
any way you want. So really, I mean, good dirt is everything, right? So I would say that if you were to talk about it in a metaphorical sense, I would say that good dirt is basically, you know, if you were to monetize it, it would be the equivalent of having a full bank account. It would be like realizing all your dreams. If you had good dirt, it's like everything that you could ever dreamed of you have. And and in our context, I can relate that, I guess, directly to what we have at Limbrek here. So in terms of our farming business, if we have good dirt or if we have good soil, that's what grows our crops, you know, which is grass and trees. And and that's what our animals eat. And that's what keeps them healthy. So really, it's the kind of the foundations of everything that we have here. Good dirt is also to us, it's about what provides us with our food. So it's what, you know, it's what feeds our kitchen garden. It's what grows our vegetables. It's what, you know, feeds us the vast majority of the year. So it gives us our food. So it gives us our business and it gives us our food. I think good dirt as well, it gives us clean air, doesn't it? Because Mm -hmm you've got these really kind of good plants that are growing in this great dirt and they're photosynthesizing and they're kind of drawing in carbon dioxide, they're pumping out oxygen. So it's giving us really good air. And it's also giving us clean water as well, because, you know, all of our water here in the Croft comes from a well. That's all been filtered through, you know, through really, really healthy soil. So to say that it's anything less than everything is underestimating everything that it is, which is basically what we have that gives us life. Well said. I really like that metaphor. That's really awesome. And, you know, we we ask all our guests that question and everybody says something different. It's just such a great question. It is a really good question. And it does really make you think because, you know, we're always striving for something in life, aren't we? You know, we're always striving for quite often, we know, we live in a culture where you've got to earn more money. You know, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to get more, you've got to, because money gives you security. And we, we always neglect the fact that, you know, security comes from shelter it comes from food it comes from water you know it comes from air and it comes from people just looking after each other Mm -hmm. and that's what the good dirt provides I think so absolutely so Lynn is there anything else that you would like the audience to understand about what you're doing or anything else that we haven't talked about yet that you wanted to touch on? I think really the last message that I think we would share with people is, you know, we're all on a journey and you really do get one chance to try and be honest with yourself and figure out what it is that you want to do because life is so short. And I think what we've done here at Limbrek is just doing our version of of what it is that makes us happy and sharing that story with integrity and honesty and openness. And I think that's what we're trying to do here. That's awesome. Thank you. Having a positive message. Yeah, I can't wait to come visit. I just want to come Oh, visit. I know. Yeah. I'm get to Scotland for real. And that would be very cool. Where can people find you and you want money and do a little plug? So you can check out our website. It's just uh, limbreckcroft.co.uk. And we're on Instagram as well at limbreck underscore croft. And yeah, we have a book coming out, which is called Our Wild Farming Life. And it's all about how we transitioned from where we were to where we are today. And you can pre-order our book on the Lady Farmer website. We hope you really enjoy the story. And can people still come visit the farm? Is that something you're still doing? Do tours? Yeah, they can, they can come visit the farm yeah we do like a monthly public tour do do private tours as well it's just a a matter of kind of getting in touch beforehand and uh, we run courses too so we run a course we called it how to farm and it was basically inspired by the first farming book that I ever read, which was called You Can Farm by Joel Salatin, famous regenerative farmer. So we wrote a four and a half day course whereby we basically deconstruct our entire business and way of life and share that with everybody, as well as lots of our incredible tasty food to try and enable others to find their journey into and back onto the land. So that's another thing we do. Amazing. And is that an in-person course? 
That's an in-person course. And I know that we've definitely got two people from America that have signed up for it this year, which is really exciting. I think they're they're coming from California, which is really cool. So that's a really awesome week. Yeah. I do have one more question for you. How is Ronnie, the calf? Ronnie is still here. She's as grumpy and as grouchy as ever. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, she's the boss. Ronnie's the boss. Uh, Yeah, she, she keeps everybody in tow. So she's doing well. So for the listeners, she's one of your Highland cattle. That's correct. And you kept her. You didn't move her on to the the land of the... The land of the not free. (laughs) Yeah. And you kept her. And I love the way you wrote about that in the book because it was very suspenseful. Like you kind of built it up. Like, what are we going to do about Ronnie? And she's she's really way more valuable to us if we, you know, if we sell her off and do the meet. And you were, you were really justifying the decision to send her on. And then suddenly you go, but we kept her here. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) But even though I understand, I understand all about the meat yeah. production. And of course, I'm fully on board and, and you expressed all that so beautifully. I mean, and you know, it's funny because we wrote the book. We started writing the book. So the publishers came to us last summer. Oh. We wrote the book over the winter. We didn't finish the book until I think it was about July of this year. Uh-huh. Really, the whole thing with Ronnie happened, yeah, about eight months ago. So it's it's pretty recent. Fairly recent. Yeah, I was going to ask, yeah. you know, where, where did you leave off with the book? And you, know, you just answered that question. So it has been all yeah. very recent. And all everything yeah. happened like really quickly. Like, yeah. Yeah. Slow living. This exactly. is Slow living. <laughs> all of this so you can live the slow life. And now you finally <laughs> made it to the Good Dirt Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah you have made it. <laughs> I am just, I, I have got a new bottle of whiskey. Yeah. I'm going to open it tonight. And that's it. I'm just going to kick back and go, yeah. You've yeah. done, yeah. you're done. And, you're and, and <laughs> done. It's all you done. are there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. But no, thank you so much for, for inviting me to speak tonight. It's been really good fun to hang yeah. out with you guys. It was a lot so of fun. fun. And um, we will let you go. We will be in touch yeah thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the good dirt podcast we hope that you enjoyed this really fun conversation with lynn we definitely did almost as much as we enjoyed reading her book which is available for pre-order now in the lady farmer marketplace You can click the link in the show notes to go straight to it, or you can just go to our website, www.ladyfarmer.com, click shop, and you'll find it under books. And uh, if you pre-order on the Lady Farmer Marketplace, then you get free access to a talkback Q&A meet and greet with Lynn that we'll be having um, later in the spring. We haven't quite nailed down the date yet. It's going to be sometime in April, most likely. This will be a ticketed event. But for those who pre-order the book through the Lady Farmer Marketplace, uh, you will get free admission. Uh, This event will also be free to all of our current Almanac members, um, as always. And yeah, so pre-order Our Wild Farming Life, uh, Lynn and Sandra's Farming Adventures at Lynn Brett Croft. And you will come get to come meet Lynn and hang out with all of us. With that, I leave you. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week on The Good Dirt. Thank you so much for being here.